So we're going to continue on in our series that we've been in for uh, the last few weeks, and we're going to be doing this all the way up through Easter. We're going to be reading through the Gospel of Mark together and looking at some different texts throughout the Gospel of Mark. And what we're really doing is we're trying to pay attention to Jesus. Uh, Mark is full of action. There's all sorts of stuff going on in Mark, and, and Mark really focuses in on Jesus and what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And one thing in particular I've been paying close attention to is like Jesus' kind of strategies for ministry and how he approached his life and the important work that the Father had called him to do. And so a lot of what we're going to be talking about is kind of looking at the rhythms of Jesus' life and the things he did and his practices to help us and guide us in the way we try to live our lives today. And so one thing I'm often paying attention to is what are the rhythms to Jesus' life? What are the practices that he did? How did he approach hard situations? How did he reach out to others? And so we've been kind of the first week, a couple weeks ago, we talked about his pattern of engagement and withdrawal, how he was highly engaged and present and focused and there in the mix of things. But he also took time to withdraw and get away all by himself to recharge and do the things he needed to do so that he could have that energy and that life within him to stay so engaged. Last week we talked about this pattern of Jesus getting into trouble a lot. And, and we borrowed John Lewis's phrase that he got into good trouble a lot. It was, he, he was willing to push the boundaries and the limits and to go up against people in power if they were hurting others. And you'll see that pattern all throughout Mark, that he gets into lots of trouble. And if you know the story of Jesus... Uh, and you know at the end, he gets in a whole lot of trouble, so much so that he is arrested, and he's kind of wrongfully convicted, I believe, in the middle of the night with this trial uh, that was just basically uh, decided at the beginning, and, and then eventually he was executed. And so um, that was another pattern of Jesus' life, and tonight what we're gonna look, or today we're going to look at another one. Um, I want to remind you also of what we're trying to really do, the essence of this series, is that we're trying to get back to the basics. We're trying to get back to the basics and look at really what I would call the radical Jesus. Now, when I say radical, I'm not trying to be edgy or anything. You know, I'm really using the word radical in its original kind of meaning, which the literal meaning of the word is to the root. And this has meant a lot to me because we really need to get to the roots of our faith. So I want to go back to the roots of our faith, where it all began. Before people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and St. Augustine, before the desert mothers and fathers, even before Peter and Paul, the source and beginnings of our faith was Jesus of Nazareth. That's what our faith is built upon. The Gospel of Mark is actually believed to be the oldest of our four Gospels, um, meaning that Mark wrote his first. His Gospel is the oldest, and I would argue it is the simplest of the four Gospels as well. It's not long-winded. It doesn't have lots of kind of heady teaching. It's very straightforward, and it's very action-oriented. So I believe Mark really wanted his readers to get a simple presentation of who Jesus was, how Jesus lived his life, so that we, as his followers even today, could model our lives after the way Jesus lived his. During Mark's time, there were a lot of social movements. Like today, there are a lot of social movements today kind of trying to inspire us or motivate us to kind of follow in their particular way of existing in this world. And during Mark's time was no different. There were lots of social movements trying to gain momentum and kind of capture the hearts and attention of the people. 
And I think Mark wrote Mark in many ways. He wrote this gospel because he's like, Jesus is the movement I want y'all to follow because his movement is really the path that's going to lead to a better world. He saw that Jesus' vision was so unique and so powerful and so inspiring that he wanted people to follow after that. And really for Mark, to be a disciple is really all about how you live your life. We have equated discipleship today um, with having right belief, that we believe all the right things. And so when we teach people about how to be a Christian, it's usually let's go through all the fundamental beliefs about our faith, which those are important. But for Mark, and I believe the early church, it was like the way you lived your life was actually what marked you as a Christian. It was a life of love and justice and peace, and that is what Mark is trying to do for us. That's why Mark doesn't get into so much teaching and all that, because he's really wanting us to model our lives after Jesus. I think Mark might be a little disturbed by uh, so many Christians today that often we worship the Christ, but we fail to follow Jesus. Last week we mentioned uh, John Lewis and Fannie Lou Hamer and their commitment to getting in good trouble in their work for freedom. And then we read about this direct action campaign that got Jesus into all kinds of trouble and his followers into all kinds of trouble with the authorities and even uh, for his, with his friends and family. Today, um, I'm feeling inspired and challenged by another person who was involved in the black freedom movement, and that's a, a guy named Howard Thurman. I've talked about him before, but Howard Thurman has been described as really the spiritual kind of uh, teacher or mentor for the freedom movement. He wasn't necessarily an activist, but he was what you might call a spiritual mystic. He was very connected to the inner world and really trying to do that inner work. Um, And he recognized that all that inner work that we do actually impacts the way we live our lives. He cared deeply about this. And one of his roles really in the freedom movement was provide that spiritual and theological um, and and just uh, reflection for the folks who were out on the streets and marching and protesting and doing all that stuff. And so really he was there as a person who provided the guidance and the encouragement and the spiritual insight to help provide this grounding and foundation for the movement. What was achieved in the black freedom movement or others called the civil rights movement would never have been achieved if they did not have that spiritual grounding for their work. I truly believe this. It was what gave them the fortitude and the perseverance to keep pressing on. When we think about the civil rights movement, we often think of protests and sit-ins and marches, but there was also this other side of this deep spiritual and political and theological and social reflection that was taking place, often in small groups or in churches or at community centers where they're really trying to do that hard inner work to help encourage and and help this movement persevere and discern the next steps forward. And this was such a critical moment. Vincent Harding described Thurman's work like this. It was a profound quest for a liberating spirituality, a way of exploring and experiencing the crucial life points where personal and societal transformation are creatively joined. And so the basic idea of this is that, that our personal work impacts the way we live in the world, and we have to think about not only changing society, but also how do we change ourselves? How do we start here inside? And over the last few years, I've been thinking and reimagining 
my faith in Jesus, and I've been blessed by Howard Thurman and his spirituality. I love the way he's able to connect the inner world for, to the way we live and work in the outer world, that personal and societal transformation creatively joined. You know, sadly, I went to a Christian university and I went to a Christian seminary. Um, I was in school a lot and I, I, I learned a lot. But I was I never at any of these uh, places was introduced to the work of Howard Thurman, a man who played such an important role in the black freedom movement. It was later in life, just a few years back, that I learned who this man actually was. And, and I just think that's sad uh, that my seminary and those places were not exposing us to more of a diversity of voices. In the midst of those direct action campaigns and protests and marches and policy work, Thurman was there providing that learning and that reflection so the movement could be grounded and fortified. And I tell you about this uh, for one reason, because I want you all to know who Howard Thurman is. If you want to read a book by him, start with Jesus and the Disinherited. It's a very small book, but very profound. Um, But I want you all to know who he is. Um, And it's also Black History Month. And throughout this whole month, I want to highlight these voices from uh, the black freedom movement and other parts of our history. But I also see an important connection to Jesus in the way that, that Jesus balanced that action and that reflection. In chapters 2 and 3 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus already is doing so much. He's very active. He's out there. In many ways, you could say Jesus like staged these direct actions to like kind of stir up trouble. I mean, he intentionally violated the Sabbath law twice in these verses. He uh, throws that party at Levi's house with all these mix of people and is violating dietary laws, I'm sure, at that meal. And he's already getting into trouble. He stirred up so much trouble that the Jerusalem authorities traveled from Jerusalem all the way to Galilee, which they didn't have cars, and so it took them a while to get there. They went all the way up there just to check him out. And when they saw what he was doing, they decided, we want to kill this guy already at the beginning of Mark. I imagine Jesus, Jesus was human just like us, so I'm sure he experienced stress. Um, he was probably feeling the weight of that opposition. He had already had death threats upon his life. I'm sure he was feeling the anxiety of all of that. Try to imagine how his disciples felt already. They'd just been called into this movement, and they're like, we're already experiencing all of this opposition, really? Like, I don't know if this is what we signed up for, Jesus. Tone it down a little bit. They were probably excited about what they could accomplish, but I imagine they were already probably feeling discouraged at the dangerous situation, at the setbacks that they had already faced right off the bat. And so what happens is, in Mark chapter 4, we read about Jesus taking his disciples away from the conflict. They withdraw This pattern of engagement and withdrawal, they withdraw from the conflict for some deep learning and reflection and connection with one another. Their movement needed to be spiritually grounded and fortified because their opposition was so dangerous and their opposition was real. And so they went down by the lake for some time to process uh, through what was going on. And Jesus taught them a good bit about what the kingdom of God was all about. And so in chapter 4, we find the first major block of teaching in Mark, and there's another one in Mark chapter 13, and both come after moments of serious conflict. So he's like, hey, things are not going so well. Let's get away so we can process what's happening and we can talk about it. When I was a youth pastor here at the church for five years, uh, we had a pretty wild youth group for a few years, and there was all sorts of chaos that would happen on a very regular basis at our youth group. It was a lot of fun. 
but there were some nights uh, after youth group where I saw it in the volunteers' faces, and I felt it myself. I don't know if we can keep doing this. Um, and I saw the discouragement. I saw the feelings of overwhelm and stress. You know, maybe a student has an angry outburst, and we have to deal with that. It's just very stressful and overwhelming, and it can feel very deflating. And it was in those moments that I felt in my spirit, I'm like, we got to get together and talk through all this. And so I would say, hey, y'all, let's, let's stay after for a little bit. Let's talk through this. Let's pray through what's happened. And I would try to provide some, some insight for them just through my experience and through scriptures of why this works so important. Opposition doesn't mean we're messing up. It might mean we're doing the right thing, actually, and help to ground what we're doing so that people could keep sustaining this hard work that we're in. And y'all... Many of y'all are in helping professions and stressful things, and y'all know y'all need that reflection, that time to process through what's going on. And so that's what Jesus is doing here in these verses. And so I want to go ahead and read um, my text in just a second. There's three parables that Jesus tells in this section. He keeps saying, listen, 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 throughout all of this section, because I know he's saying, hey, y'all open your ears. Y'all need to pay attention, because my kingdom's not like the kingdoms of this world. This is why we're experiencing opposition. Pay attention to what's happening. And so he tells three parables, the parable of the sower, the parable of the growing seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. Now, all these have something in common. They're all about seeds. They're all about farming. Jesus was very smart. He was his main, when he started his ministry, it was mostly peasant farmers who were following him at the beginning, or fishermen, people who were used to farming and being on the land. He was mostly in the rural area of Galilee, not in the city of Jerusalem. And so he was telling these parables because I think they understood them, right? They would understand what farming's all about because that's what they did in their work. So let me just read one of them, the parable of the mustard seed. I know my wife is cringing probably because she's heard me talk about this probably like 25 times or more in my uh, life because it's my favorite parable in the whole scriptures. And you're going to hear some things maybe you've heard before, but it's very important. Uh, And so I want to say it again. Um, because we need to keep reminding ourselves about what Jesus taught in this particular parable. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 32. It's a very short uh, parable, but I think it's, it's very deep and very profound. And keep in mind, this is meant to be encouraging to the disciples to keep moving forward, to keep going in their work. Again, he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. He says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. He starts out the parable saying, what shall we compare the kingdom of God to? What parable can we use to describe it. Now, if he's going to pick a parable to talk about the kingdom of the Almighty God, I, if I was in that position, I would never think to choose a parable about a mustard seed, right? That's an absurd image to think of the kingdom of God. God, we talked about, we sang that Revelation song, it's a mighty powerful God is what we're singing to. And Jesus says, I'm going to talk about the kingdom of God by talking about one of the smallest seeds you could ever find on earth. That is, that's like an embarrassing thing to say. I mean, it's like ridiculous, right? Jesus, what are you talking about? When I think of the kingdom of God, I want to think of power, of speed, of dominance, of glory and honor and strength, of something that is just beautifully powerful and awesome, right? What shall we say about the kingdom of God? What parable? 
Maybe we could talk about the strong cedars of Lebanon or the mighty fortress that is fortified and cannot be taken down. But Jesus didn't do that. One of the functions of parables was to challenge and provoke people. If you ever show up to church and you feel provoked, then uh, sometimes that's a good thing, right? Because that's what Jesus did in his teachings is he tried to provoke people sometimes because he wanted them to think about something. So him talking about the kingdom of God like a mustard seed would have been very provoking to them. They wouldn't have understood it. But I, like, I think they would have leaned in a little bit and said, let's see, let's, what's he talking about here? Why is he using this parable to talk about the kingdom of God? He says the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed, one of the smallest seeds you'll ever find. Yet, he says, when you put it in the ground and you water it and you tend to it and you care for it, it'll eventually sprout and it'll start to grow. And he says it even grows big enough that it can provide shelter for birds who can perch on its branches. This small band of Jesus followers who were facing intense opposition, I think would have found comfort in this parable. But what about it would have been so comforting? Over the last 18 years of being here at this church, I've reflected on this parable, and that's why my wife has been hearing me talk about it for 18 years now, um, and its implications for ministry and for life. So I want to share just two quick insights that I'm sure you've heard me say in one way or another many times. But there are things that, like, I always need to be reminded of, and and it might hit you differently now as you're in a different season of your life. The first thing this parable tells me is that small things matter. And I cannot stop saying that because in our culture, in our society, in our world, we do not place much value on smallness, on things that are insignificant. We, We just give honor and praise to the biggest and most powerful and the fastest and the sleekest and the smartest and the most polished Uh, the happiest, and Jesus says, no, the small things matter. Common, ordinary, things that seem insignificant truly do matter. The mustard seed is so small that if you dropped one on the ground, you probably would not notice it. Nobody would ever see it. Maybe a small child would see it because they often have eyes to see things we don't. But most of us adults, we're going to pass right over that mustard seed and we're not going to see it. Yet Jesus chose something so small to describe the kingdom of God. This is not a new teaching. This is all throughout Scripture. There are so many examples from our faith tradition that teach us that small things matter. You think about the first king of Israel. Do you all know who the first king of Israel was? His name was King Saul. They chose King Saul to be their king because he was big, he was strong, he was a good fighter. He looked like the kind of guy you wouldn't want to mess with and could run their country the way they wanted it to be run and keep all their enemies away. King Saul was a terrible king. He was an awful king. And he did not lead the country well. Then comes King David, who was a small, overlooked, young shepherd boy. When they came to select the new king, he was the last one that they ever imagined in the family who would be chosen. They didn't even consider him an option Yet David became king, and he ruled better than any before him, and certainly better than those who came after him as well. He wasn't perfect, but King David, the small overlooked one, was someone that God used to do something wonderful. Jesus came to us, born in a small, impoverished town of Bethlehem, and grew up in a small, overlooked town of Nazareth. Nazareth is the kind of town that you don't really ever think to go to, you would never want to go to, yet that's where Jesus grew up. Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, was called to be a mom of the Son of God as a teenage girl who was young and small, likely poor, and viewed as probably pretty insignificant in her, in her community. 
In Zechariah 4.10, we read, do not despise small beginnings. I love that scripture. Small things, small people, small places, they're important all throughout our scriptures. Yet we miss the mark so often, and our churches are often places that we want to glorify the big and flashy and awesome and, 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 and all the people and all the things, yet smallness is something that God seems to cherish. In 1955, 42-year-old Rosa Parks, y'all know the story, she decided to keep her seat on the bus and not move to the back like the law told her she was supposed to. She was just one person taking a stand for what she knew was right. She described her decision in matter-of-fact terms. She said, I was just tired of giving in. So she didn't, she didn't get up that day. One could argue that that small act of defiance in the face of this vast, unjust network of segregation laws and racial injustice would have no impact on what was going on. But her small act of defiance led to a massive boy, bus boycott that lasted for 381 days. She said, stand for something or you will fall for anything. Today's mighty oak is yesterday's nut that held its ground. I love that quote. Perhaps the disciples, maybe they regretted, maybe they were questioning following Jesus after the first uh, few weeks of that ministry. You know, they're like, we had this scandalous meal with Levi and we got in trouble for that. We, you're breaking the Sabbath laws and telling us to do it with you. Got in trouble for that. Now they're already put a mark on our heads. Maybe they were like, I don't know about this, Jesus. What are you doing? So Jesus took them aside and said, hey, these things you're doing may not seem significant. They may be stirring up trouble, but I'm telling you, these small things that you're doing matter. You standing up for what's right matters. The second lesson of the mustard seed is that disciples must be patient this is another one that we need to hear over and over and over again. In a, in a world that wants quick results, we want things to happen immediately. We don't want to have to wait for anything. We need to always be reminded of patience. This parable of the mustard seed is about a small seed, but it's also about farming. I'm a terrible gardener. I'd probably be even worse farmer because I'm, I don't have the patience to do it, you know. I, I, I want to see the thing come out of the ground quickly, and that doesn't always happen. Don't want to have to do the weeding and all the stuff that goes along with it. But Jesus uses this parable to describe the kingdom, I believe, to teach us about the importance of patience. That, that small things matter and that, that slow growth is part of our own personal journeys, but also the journey of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not just going to come down and be established in its power right away. It's going to take time. Seeds take time to go, grow. The end result is beautiful, but they don't come quickly. The result doesn't come quickly, and it doesn't come easy. My wife and I went to Spain a few years back in 2016, and we uh, did a pilgrimage there um, on the Camino de Santiago. And, and it was a, a beautiful thing. We walked 300 miles across Spain. And that was a something I learned on that trip is that, you know, you just have to put in the work. It doesn't come quickly. We have to get up every day, and we just got to walk. <laughs> and we got to go to bed, get our energy, walk again, and eventually we can get to the destination. But it takes time. It takes patience. Good things don't come easily, and good things don't often come quickly. You know, I read this quote from John Lewis last week, and when he was talking about his work that he had been involved in for his whole life, he said, our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It's the struggle of a lifetime. And one thing I've learned through being a part of this community for almost 18 years now 
And just even saying 18 years I've been here is like maddening to me that I've been here that long at this church and in this community. But I've learned over the years that patience is key, that we take time to grow. We as individuals take time to grow. Um, I'm not who I was 18 years ago, but it was, there's not been, maybe it looks like a, a big change between now and then, but over time it's just slowly trying to, to continue to become the person God has made me to be, and I've still got a lifetime left, and I know each of you all do as well. Our community takes time to grow. Embrace is a wonderful, unique place that I love, um, and it took a lot of work from people way before my time here now to become this church that it is today. If we're going to be in community together, if we're going to work together for the common good, we have to be friends of time. We have to understand that things take what it takes, that that it's not going to come quickly. One of our values at Embrace is that we're gritty Christ followers, and I talked about that in the fall. I'll remind you of this definition of grit that I love, that grit is that passion and perseverance for long-term goals. It's not giving up. It's sticking with it. It's continuing to focus on the small things each and every day and just continuing to push forward to try to see the the beauty and the goodness and the peace and love that we're searching for in our lives and in our community come to fruition. Rich Mullins, a Christian artist who died in the 90s, and I've shared this before, and it just means a lot to me, but I was reading through, I don't even know where I came across this. Maybe it was in a journal entry of his that I'd come across in a book or something, but he said these words, and they've stuck with me. He said, we grow slowly and love takes time. That we grow slowly and love takes time. And I think that's the essence of the mustard seed. It starts out small. It takes time and work, but the reward is great and beautiful and beyond what we can comprehend. The early community of disciples, they needed that time of reflection and teaching, and they needed it often. And this was a pattern in their movement. They needed that so they can learn that their work wasn't in vain, that God was up to something new and powerful, and that these small seeds of love and justice could take root even in a hostile world. And one thing, one purpose of Embrace, this is a sole thing that we do, but many of you all do in, like meaningful, important work. Um, I was talking to Rob recently, and we were just talking about all the people in helping professions at our church who are therapists and teachers and social workers and doing all this important work. And... And this stuff is like hard, like it's hard because you don't see progress sometimes and you're just pushing. Many of you all, even if it's not in your occupation, you're doing such important things throughout your week, investing in other people's lives. And one reason we gather here on Sundays and on Mondays and through classes and all these things is so we can encourage one another and we can reflect on the work that we do and we can think about where God is in the midst of all this and how we can have perseverance and fortitude to keep moving forward and working towards a more peaceable kingdom, uh, this beloved community that Dr. King talked about. And so it's so needed what we do here each and every week. This is one reason I don't give up on church because I need you all and I believe that you all need each other. And, and we need to do this uh, every single week. We need to continue to have this rhythm in our lives. And it's modeled after Jesus' own rhythm that he had when he walked among us. I have just two questions I want you all to reflect on as we end our time together in this message. And I'll just read it slowly and give you a chance to think of what are some things that come to your mind quickly. If you want, you can just jot them down or put them on your phone or whatever you need to do. But think back over the last year. Or even just the last week, two months, whatever, you, whatever time frame you want to look at. But where do you see 
the impact and the value of small things. How has God used small things to impact your life, maybe another person or our community? I shared this a couple weeks ago, but for me, like, I've gone through grief and loss, and, and some of the most meaningful things have been just the small acts of love and support that people have offered. It's like a text or a gift. Uh, some friends of mine gave me a gift when they traveled overseas, came back with this beautiful gift of pottery to give to me and Laura just to communicate they love us. Um, I have another friend here at this church, and she, I don't ever, I, I don't see her that much. I saw her for the first time this past week. Uh, and, and actually a couple years, but she has messaged me and Laura on a consistent basis, said, no need to respond, just want y'all to know if you need anything, I'm here, and I'm praying for you, and I'm supporting you through this time of grief. And, and even folks, when they remember when Chosen passed away or when his birthday is and those things, those small things make such a difference. And so I encourage y'all to think about in your own life, what are those small things, those small acts of love that people have offered to you that have made an impact in your life? What are the small things you've done in working towards a goal that have made an impact? But be reflecting on that throughout the week. And the second question is, where are you struggling to have patience? Are you tempted to give up? Are you just feeling like you can't keep doing it anymore? You can't keep making that next right step, you know, and you're just wanting to give up. Or maybe you've had a big setback in your life recently, and you're having a hard time getting back up and having that patience and persevering. Maybe think about what do you need right now to help you persevere. I've realized recently that I need some good friends in my life. Um, and and not, not a knock on my church, but not, maybe people not part of the church so I can talk about my church with people, you know. Um, and so I've actually sought that out and I've been able to have that with some guys that we meet on Zoom. And some of us just went to the gorge a few weeks ago. And that's helping me persevere in my life. But what do you need in your life to help you persevere? If y'all want, y'all can take a picture of those or you can go back and find them on our stream um, or jot those down. But I encourage you to be maybe journaling about those, thinking about those questions throughout the week and just knowing that, that the small things matter and that patience has got to be a part of our journey um, or we're not going to be able to, to continue uh, seeing the beauty and the fruit uh, that, that I believe we can see if we continue to persevere.